Tobias, welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. Glad to have you on. Perhaps you could start by introducing yourself to our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Tobias Bauman. I'm uh, a researcher at and co-founder of the Center for Reducing Suffering, which is a research nonprofit that tries to figure out what we can do now to best reduce suffering, taking into account all sentient beings and, and the long-term future. Uh, I'm also the author of a book uh, called Avoiding the Worst, which is exploring potential worst-case futures of humanity and what we can do to prevent them. All right. So what are these uh, suffering risks that, that you're worried about and, and why should we focus on them? So suffering risks are broadly defined as worst case futures that entail suffering on an astronomical scale, vastly exceeding everything that has uh, happened so far. And uh, I mean, why should we focus on them? Well, because that would be very bad, right? So it's, it's kind of self-explanatory that, that those scenarios would be extremely bad, which is why it would be uh, worthwhile to do something to prevent that if we can. So, so one of these scenarios that could cause a lot of suffering is involves space colonization. Maybe you could, we could start there and, and you could talk about how space colonization could be risky uh, and could potentially create a lot of suffering. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose the relevant bit is, is simply that it would massively raise the stakes, that um, it would presumably result in an overall explosion of the size of, of human civilization, of, of the overall population size. So uh, if humanity expands throughout the universe, then everything is kind of scaled up by a factor of not just 10 or 100, but like by, by a factor of a million or a billion, if you imagine a future interstellar intergalactic civilization. So the stakes would be higher by, by many orders of magnitude. So even if only the, the, the existing forms of suffering continue, that they, they now happen on a larger scale, so that would already be uh, an asterisk. Um, although it is worth noting that the relationship between space, expansion into space and, and astronomical sca scales is, is not so straightforward, because if, if you have a situation where we merely, I don't know, build sporadic outposts somewhere or, or mine some sort of asteroids or something like that, then that in and of itself would not be so relevant. So I mean, the, the key question is like that it but that it would raise the stakes, that it would, would result in an explosion of the size of, of human population, of, of human civilization. Do, do you think all of the worst possible suffering events in the future involve um, space colonization? Or do, do you think that, that space colonization is, is, is the biggest suffering risk uh, because it's, it raises the stakes so much? Yeah, I mean, this uh, sort of ties back to the expected value framework, right? An argument can be made that scenarios that involve space colonization are just so much larger in scale by many orders of magnitude that we should focus on, on them, even if those scenarios are not necessarily the most likely. I'm not saying that space colonization is necessarily likely. I mean, the sort of large-scale space colonization. In fact, maybe I'm fairly, I'm fairly skeptical about that uh, because... What exactly would even be the, mo the motivation, you know? Why exactly does, does Elon Musk uh, need to go to Mars? Like, it's just a barren wasteland with weird gravity and, like, no atmosphere. So, so why exactly? What, what exactly is the point of expanding into space? We're far away from running out of available space on Earth. So 
uh, one can sort of wonder why exactly space colonization would happen. But I mean, that is an intention with like the, the argument, like the, the EV framework and the larger stakes if space colonization happens. So, so you, you think that uh, humanity in the future wouldn't necessarily be motivated to venture into space, to expand into space? At least it's not so obvious to me. I mean, it's just, it's subject to the, the usual uh, great uncertainty about the future. I, I would say that I'm neither uh, super confident that space colonization will happen, nor super confident that it will not happen. But I, I was just saying that I'm wondering about what exactly would the motivation be, uh, other than that it's kind of cool to expand into space, but like... Yeah, it, it, perhaps one uh, big, large motivation is just that it, it would be an awesome testament to, to what uh, humanity is able to achieve. But if we're talking more in terms of more the objective value of uh, of trying to to conquer other planets for example or trying to extract resources then perhaps one thing would be that if we had control over things that 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 are large scale risks on earth such as nuclear weapons and engineered pandemics and perhaps artificial intelligence then if we're if we're only sitting on earth then we're just waiting to be destroyed by an asteroid or a super volcano or another type of of natural risk uh, if we haven't expanded into space so perhaps that could be a motivation to go to space that's beyond the accelerating feeling of of, of seeing a rocket uh, fly and and humans on the moon and on mars and so on possibly um i mean okay there's still a question of whether it is worth the costs um whether or not i mean you can also just have a bunker in antarctica somewhere even if you have nuclear war, Earth is still less inhospitable than Mars, probably, because Mars doesn't have an atmosphere. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know. But perhaps that could be a reason to do it. But that is just a reason to have an, outpo an outpost somewhere, right? Not a reason to colonize every planet. And uh, so that is one, one point. Yeah, and of course, there's a difference between whether you believe it's a good idea that, that humans should attempt space colonization and whether you predict that humans actually will attempt space colonization. And I, as I understand you, you, you think that we will actually attempt to colonize space and that this could constitute just raising the stakes enormously, which, which also includes raising the stakes of a lot of future suffering. Um, is that somewhat correct? Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying it, it, is a, it is a possibility. And because that possibility would vastly raise the stakes, it's in an expected value framework, it seems to be, be worth thinking about uh, these futures. And the, the suffering beings we're talking about, if we colonize space, are these uh, humans? Or are we also thinking that we will perhaps bring along with us animals? Or w w which beings could suffer in a scenario where we colonize space? Uh, it could, in principle, be both humans as well as uh, animals, like some sort of factory farming on a larger scale, as well as potentially wild animals. I mean, this is um, certainly speculative, but I mean, yeah, maybe humans could bring wild animals to, to, to other planets and then that would sort of multiply the, the scale of, of wild animal suffering. It could also be future artificial minds. I mean, I would actually say that the, the question of which beings are affected by, by suffering is kind of orthogonal to independent of the question of whether or not uh, we expand into space, at least in principle. 
presumably scenarios that involve large scale space colonization are like they, they involve more advanced technology. So maybe it is more likely that in those scenarios you would also have artificial sentences or advanced AI and so on. Um, but it is still important to disentangle those different factors, like whether we colonize space is one factor, whether or not there would be a population explosion is another factor. Those don't necessarily have to go hand in hand. And whether or not we have advanced AI is, is yet another factor. So I think there's sometimes a tendency in, in long-termist EA discourse to just uh, throw all of that together. And, you know, we're going to have AI and then it's going to colonize space and then we will have 10 to the power 50 uh, humans or beings in the future. But like, it is possible that some of those things happen, but not others. That, that is a possibility to, to be mindful of. Yeah, and we should also perhaps flag here that you are not only interested in preventing suffering that arises from space colonization. You're in fact very interested in, in, in researching what might cause suffering in the future in, in general. And so we should, at least as, as I understand you, we should, we should keep an open mind as to which types of, of suffering risks might materialize in the future. There is an interesting uh, blog post by Robin Hansen where he's arguing that yeah, it's called a galaxy on Earth, I think, where he's arguing that it could actually also have a huge number of beings on Earth if you really optimize for it, if you build like huge skyscrapers or like underground or something like that. If you use all available space, you could have a huge number of beings even just on Earth, even without colonizing space. So that's something to, be, to also be aware of. So we're so in this scenario we're we're thinking at the edges of physics. How how many conscious beings can be supported by Earth? Um, if we dig uh, kilometers into the ground and build kilometers into the sky, is something like that? Yeah, I mean, there is a, you can of course wonder whether or not that theoretical limit is very uh, uh, relevant, uh, or whether or not such scenarios are realistic. It seems far fetched to think that we would do that but like on the other hand who knows okay so we should we should uh, walk through some examples that you've uh, that you've written about about how we might go about preventing uh, suffering risks and and trying to prevent future suffering so one of these uh, avenues is to do a moral advocacy and and this involves uh, what you call um, expanding the moral circle if I remember correctly, this was a term that uh, the philosopher Peter Singer came up with, uh, originally intended to in, to describe the situation where we begin to include animals into our uh, circle of moral concern. But um, which be which beings would you advocate for um, being included into our moral circle now? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are many steps to the, the moral circle. Like the smallest possible moral circle is kind of a, I only care about myself. Then the next step would be something to, to care about myself and my family and friends. And then uh, the next step would be, I don't know, my, my village and my tribe, then my entire nation, then all of humanity, and then humanity and animals, and then all sentient beings uh, or something like that. So in terms of beings that are currently excluded, uh, a large category is definitely non-human animals. That's uh, farmed animals in particular. We do care a little bit about uh, dogs and cats, but of course we should uh, care just as much about pigs and chickens that uh, are suffering often in, in terrible conditions on, on our factory farms and slaughterhouses. 
So that's that's one important uh, way in which the moral circle needs to expand. Another point that is often forgotten even by animal activists is that of animals living in nature, because they actually do constitute the, the vast majority of sentient beings on, on Earth right now. Our animals are wild animals, animals living in nature. Um, and of course, their, their well-being, their suffering matters just as much. Uh, it would be a mistake to think that they don't matter merely because they because it's not directly influenced by humans or something like that. Yet another step that is perhaps where we're starting to enter like maybe more speculative territory uh, is that of like very small animals, invertebrates or insects, where it's just not entirely clear whether those are sentient. Uh, so it's, it's not clear whether or not those should be included, but it's at least uh, a possibility. And then an even more speculative possibility is, is that of artificial sentience, which I've already mentioned. Potentially, you could have sufficiently complex computer programs or simulations, artificial minds that, that develop uh, sentience and have developed the, capa the capacity for conscious experience. And it's, again, very unclear whether that, that will happen, whether it's realistic. But the point is that if such sentient beings exist, then their well-being matters uh, morally. So if we think about moral circle expansion as a tactic for trying to reduce future suffering, uh, do, do you see any potential downsides with that uh, tactic? Uh, could it backfire uh, in specific ways? Yes, uh, I mean, it, it certainly could. I think one important backfire is to be aware of is that you could trigger a, a backlash against this idea. It could become a polarized topic of, of political discussion. It could become a culture war thing. I mean, there are various uh, variations of that. Maybe people would just think that it's crazy, and, and that would obviously be very bad. Maybe people would think that it's that it constitutes a, dis, a sort of disloyalty to your own tribe, nation, whatever, that you care so much about all of those weird minds, you know? Uh, so that's perhaps a reason why people would react, would be hostile to this idea. And so it's important to communicate these ideas carefully and to emphasize cooperation uh, when when we're talking about those things and to avoid needlessly antagonizing others. What about simply being empirically wrong about which minds to include? So say that we are uncertain about whether insects are conscious and then we decide uh, anyways based on the, the risks involved, um, perhaps based on the expected values uh, calculations we've made to advocate for their inclusion into the, the moral circle. But it turns out that we're wrong. That is potentially a, a high stakes uh, bet that that's that's being made. If if the the scientific consensus uh, in fifty years is, is that insects are not conscious, and then we then we have um, perhaps wasted resources or cried wolf about um, beings that 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 turned out to to not uh, be able to feel pain or or pleasure anyways. Yeah, that is certainly a risk. I mean. And even if one thinks that on a sort of precautionary principle that because that insects might might matter a lot, uh, it, it's there's still a strategic question of whether or not it is wise to, to emphasize this aspect in in public advocacy. So that that's also something to be to be mindful of. One can also wonder whether it is particularly helpful to divide things up in this way because, like, ultimately, what matters is to convince people of the idea that all sentient beings matter. You know, no matter whether they're biological or artificial or like human or, or non-human or, or living in nature or, or whatever. Uh, so 
ideally, you would convince people of this this abstract philosophical idea that all sentient beings matter. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that it's easy, but that would sort of be the ideal to have a movement for all sentient beings. And that certainly seems to be your your ethical starting point. Um, what what makes you so convinced of this idea? So I mean, the arguments that have uh, are being made by Peter Singer and and others uh, are that. It would just constitute a an arbitrary form of discrimination to, to say that some beings don't matter because they, they belong to the, the wrong, so to speak, species. And, and that, that would just seem like an arbitrary form of unjustified discrimination. To me, like what, what matters is that there are that there is someone suffering and that, that matters morally. So I mean I've always found that intuitive, uh, this sort of line of argument. But I appreciate that it comes down to moral intuitions and maybe other people will, will feel differently about that. And I, and I think other people throughout history and, and even in, in today's academic philosophy and so on, uh, they, they have felt uh, differently. They have uh, thought that these, uh, what, what could seem like arbitrary distinctions uh, actually matter so that perhaps uh, humans are... are um, worth more than animals in in virtue of the fact that we are humans how how seriously would you take uh, the fact that that a lot of people disagree with um with this uh, care for all sentient beings yeah so far i've, I've always tried to uh, be, be nuanced and but like this is maybe one thing where, where i would be inclined to say that those people are, are simply wrong it's worth noting that we're here not talking about empirical objective facts, we're just talking about value judgments about, about moral philosophy. And it is simply, my point of view is that, that, that all sentient beings matter equally, that I care, care equally regardless of, of species membership. Is this perhaps, could we uh, frame this as a, as a bet you're making in a sense that say that huma- the human civilization, we, we become more rational, we become more collectively intelligent and compassionate over the next uh, hundred years, say, and your bet is then that that people would come around to your view and would would abandon the the, the views that that not all uh, sentient beings matter. So perhaps it's it's a it's a it's some form of empirical prediction uh, about the ethical views that will be held in in a century from now. Well, I mean, whether or not we we will be becoming more rational or ethical, that that is like an entirely different question. Like, sorry, so you're asking if we do become more ethical and rational. Then I think that people would probably move more towards an, an anti-speciesist view, more towards taking all sentient beings into account. Indeed, it is already worth noting that, like, while there is disagreement among philosophers on that, there is a substantial number of people that, that do agree with this point of view, much more so than in the general population. I, I think, right? So, in a sense, it is already true that the people who have thought about this the most, who have reflected the most about moral philosophy are far more positively inclined towards an animal rights view, towards taking all sentient beings into account than, quote-unquote, the layman. Let's talk about which emergent technologies could potentially have a, have a large effect on, on the, the risk of uh, future suffering. I think what's on the top of, of everyone's mind uh, recently, or many listeners to this podcast, will uh, be interested in artificial intelligence. Uh, so perhaps you could talk about the, the combination of uh, how important will it be to shape the, the future of AI from the, the perspective of trying to reduce future suffering? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so it is quite possible that artificial intelligence, advanced artificial intelligence will be a very important uh, technology that, that shapes the future to a large degree, comparable to perhaps something like the industrial revolution. Though, I mean, this is again one of those things where I'm saying that uh, it, it's uncertain. I'm neither confident that it will happen nor confident that it will not happen. So, but you could make a similar argument to the one about space colonization that the stakes will just be much higher if such advanced technologies will be developed, which is why it's, it's, it's worthwhile to think about those scenarios or, and to focus on them, even if it's not necessarily what you think is, is most likely. We can maybe discuss them likely separately, but still there's, there's that argument to be made. But then it, it's a somewhat different question. Like when you, you mentioned, I think, shaping the development of artificial intelligence, and that's that raises the question of like what, what exactly does shaping it mean? I think there's a bit of a, a common mistake perhaps to jump to the conclusion that direct technical work on AI safety is like the that this is an implication of the idea that, that AI is important, therefore we need to do technical work on AI safety. But this um, I think it's it's not so simple because other interventions such as moral advocacy or or improving uh, our political discourse, uh, anything basically that you could do that broadly influences the long-term future. I mean, this would still affect AI outcomes, right? It would indirectly affect them. After all, AI development does not happen in a vacuum. Uh, so it's, it's intertwined with broader social and political trends. And so it, even in a world in which, like, even if we know that there will be advanced uh, transformative AI in the year 2100, say, it's possible, it's still possible that the most uh, impactful thing to do now would, would be moral advocacy rather than trying to directly shape AI. So there's this distinction, which I think is important. Uh, perhaps one argument against this is to say that when we're talking about AI safety, what we're talking about is, is trying to make a, an AI system uh, or AI systems in general behave according to what we want. So we, we are aligning them with our preferences. And that seems to me to be a necessary condition for, for aligning them with any ethical view. So perhaps uh, solving uh, or working on AI safety is necessary to imbue AIs with the values we want, whatever they, those values uh, may be. What, do, do, you think, do you think that AI safety is, is necessary in that way? So, I mean, there's maybe a couple of things that, that could be said about that. Maybe my first thought on it is that maybe this aspect of making it do what, what humans want is probably not going to be very neglected, right? Because, uh, I mean, everyone is going to want that. An AI that is a system that is just intelligent but doesn't do what you want is, is not, not, doesn't do you much good, right? Um, so perhaps this aspect is, is less neglected uh, and we should focus on something that is, that is more neglected. Also, when people talk about alignment with human values, I mean... What human values? You know, some human values are, are not uh, that great from my point of view as someone who cares about all sentient beings. So it's not true that merely aligning the system with some notion of what humans want would necessarily prevent uh, S risks. Uh, it, it could still result in bad outcomes because average human values are, let's just say that they, they're problematic in, in some ways. So from a purely asterisk-focused perspective, I would say that it's perhaps better to focus on, on other aspects, like such as avoiding uh, conflicts between, between AI that, that could 
uh, result in, in asterisks. Okay, perhaps we should go into that then. Um, so avoiding um, conflicts between AIs, uh, was there, it, it, does this uh, link to your, your work on cooperative AI? Yeah, so perhaps you could explain what, uh, what is cooperative AI. So cooperative AI is a, a research field, a subfield of, of artificial intelligence that is aiming at creating artificial agents, AIs, that can productively navigate cooperation problems, social dilemmas, things like the, the prisoner's dilemma, in their interactions with both other artificial agents and, and humans. And so this goal of achieving cooperative AI is, is different from sheer maximization of capabilities or, or intelligence, which is what is usually considered to be the goal of AI research, which is why, why it's a subfield. So, I mean, we can talk a bit more about the precise goals and definition of, of what cooperation means and so on, which is not entirely clear and there, there are various conceptual questions there. But so just to briefly uh, explain like the, the connection to asterisks is that many worst case scenarios can arise from when you have escalating conflicts, especially high stakes conflicts potentially involving future technology. Uh, it is easy to see how that could result in, in very bad outcomes. And so having more cooperative AI is a way to, to mitigate these risks. Uh, if you have more positive sum cooperation, then the risk of those worst case outcomes from conflicts is, is lessened. And so that, that is why many people who are interested in asterisk production think that cooperative AI is like a promising thing to look at. The picture you're painting of, of, of future AI development here is, uh, if I understand it correctly, uh, a picture in which there are, there are many AIs interacting with each other and interacting with humans. Perhaps that, that is a bit different from what other people might imagine. Uh, other people might be inclined to imagine one, two, or, or, or three a, a large AI systems that are um, powerful enough to, to influence um, the entire world. Do you think this, and, and, and why, do you, why do you believe that, that uh, AI development might be more dispersed and uh, we might have uh, thousands or millions of, of AIs as opposed to one, two, or three? Yeah, so I mean, I, guess, I suppose the field of cooperative AI is kind of aimed at scenarios where you have more than one system, because if you have just have one, I mean, I suppose you could still imagine scenarios where you encounter alien civilizations or you have some sort of a causal game theory uh, thing, thing involving other universes. Okay, but like bracketing that, if you have one agent, then, then of course that there are no cooperation uh, problems. So yeah, the field is kind of premised on having separate agents. Uh, one thing that's worth noting is that you could have a situation where you, ha you at first have many different AIs and then they just kind of compete. And at some point, only one takes over. That, that still leaves you with cooperation problems or, or potential conflict like in the in the period leading up to that that point, right? So in that case, it would still be relevant. Now uh, you were asking whether or not uh, how likely it is that there is going to be a single agent. Uh, personally, I don't think I, I wouldn't view that as as too likely, just on the basis of historical trends. It seems to me that the the prediction that you will just that all power will be consolidated into a single system. I mean, what exactly would be the evidence for that view? I wouldn't rule it out either, but it doesn't seem too likely to me. It seems to me that the most natural evolution would be for like many different actors to all develop their AIs. 
And when we are worried about AIs um, interacting uh, and we want them to cooperate uh, as opposed to um, interact in hostile ways, are we, are we drawing on lessons from history? So are we, are we drawing on, on humans interacting with each other? Are we trying to, to import some of the, some of the lessons that, that we've learned there? And perhaps as an additional question here, humans do not seem to have solved the problem of cooperation. So how can we, how can we hope that, that we can teach AIs how to cooperate? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that cooperation problems have been something that has just been like a sort of ubiquitous and perennial problem of humanity. Um, and one that we have certainly not completely solved, probably never will completely solve. Uh, although, I mean, in some aspects, we have solved it to some degree. Like, uh, I mean, Steven Pinker makes that case that violence has declined. Within a certain society, things are now nowadays surprisingly peaceful in some ways, um, certainly more so than they have been in the past, because we have things like the police, the justice system, and so on, that is created, we've created in, in institutions and incentive structures that, that mean that it just doesn't make much sense to randomly kill people on the street. Uh, and and that, that actually works. So like that cooperation problem, that's something that, that we've solved to a large degree, at least. So can we program AIs or train AIs in ways that make them better than humans at co cooperating? Possibly. Um, that, that is an interesting question. This is one of the conceptual issues with, with uh, cooperative AI, is that it kind of comes down to a good degree uh, to whether or not the operators even, even want their, their AI to be cooperative. Because I can say that, like, I mean, I don't necessarily want, if I have this AI that manages my personal finances, I don't want it to say that, like, oh, but it would be most cooperative to give the money to someone who needs it more. Well, okay, maybe, but, like, people are not going to use that sort of system. They want a system that just pursues their own interest. Uh, and so the, there's a, a bit of a question of, of what exactly the goal is. But um, I nevertheless think that there's some scope to do, do, do useful things here because when we build AIs, we, we're sort of building those systems from scratch. We're probably going to have regulations, institutions governing the interaction between those AIs. And so at this sort of uh, starting point, you might have a lot of, leverage over how those interactions will be, will be structured, what the incentives will be for the different agents. And if you set it up in the right way, you can probably make cooperative outcomes more likely. At least that would be the idea. So what we might be imagining here is, is that uh, 20 years from now, I have an AI assistant and, and you have one too. And uh, these AI assistants are autonomous uh, to the extent that they, that they can, we can give them tasks and they can go out in the world and solve these tasks for us. And perhaps uh, in, in their business of solving these tasks, they have to cooperate or they have to, to, to f interact in a way where we don't want them to say, say you want uh, the last bread in the bakery and, and I want it too. And we've, we've both given our, our AIs the task of, of, of fetching the bread for us. We don't want them to uh, become violent or confrontational. Uh, we want them perhaps to you know, solve this problem in, in a way that, that's more cooperative. Is that too fanciful or is that, uh, it's, it's my, this is my attempt of, of trying to make uh, what we're talking about more concrete here. Uh, does that sound plausible or reasonable to you? 
Yeah, yeah, no, that that's that seems fine. Yeah, um, I mean, in a way, this is this would just be an extension of of the cooperation problem that you and I would be having if we just were, were doing this stuff ourselves. But as I was saying, maybe there is a way to set up those AI agents and the structures, regulations, institutions, norms, laws that govern their interactions in a way that, that makes it easier for them to cooperate and, and solve those cooperation problems that, than it would be for, for humans to do this. Because as humans, we, I mean, just have certain constraints. I mean, the, the sort of human minds and impulses and behaviors are, well, not entirely fixed, but, but some, to some degree, uh, they're harder to change than if you have agents like AI agents will be programmed from scratch. So, I mean, if you have, if you were able to program humans from scratch, it would also be easier to solve certain cooperation problems because then you could sort of just edit out um, people with particularly malevolent or sadistic or psychopathic uh, impulses, right? Uh, the point is that we can't easily do that with humans. Uh, but when it comes to future AI agents, maybe there will be more wiggle room to do that sort of thing that, that uh, results in more cooperative outcomes. Perhaps one, one question that arises for me here is, is the question of how good can we become at cooperating? How good could, could future AIs become at cooperation? Uh, and are there limits uh, built into uh, perhaps even physics or, or the mathematics of, of, of game theory that make it so that, so that, you, so that perfect cooperation or... Uh, utopia of cooperation cannot really be achieved so so i'm thinking for example the future might be very good but it will probably uh, involve a resource scarcity which makes it, it makes it the case that it's not always possible to cooperate if if both parties want uh, to maximize their resources for example how how far from from the ideal uh, of of perfect cooperation uh, are humans and how far from that ideal could AIs be so so how much better could they become at cooperating than we are I mean, cooperation simply that depends on the, the circumstances, right? I mean, if you're if you're in a single shot prisoner's dilemma, then uh, that the rational thing to do is simply to defect. And so, I mean, there's, there's a question of what exactly does it mean for agents to be better or worse at cooperating? And, and actually, another issue is, of course, that since those agents will be intelligent, I mean, why wouldn't they figure it out on their own? Sort of how, how to handle those things. So maybe I, I'm I find it more. Um, helpful to think about it in terms of how, how can the, the, the relevant institutions, laws, and so on, be, be set up to, to foster cooperative outcomes in those interactions between AIs in much the same way as we're doing it with, with humans, you know, by, by having a police, uh, a legal system, and so on, the rule of law, that sort of things. So you're thinking at it uh, at cooperation at the level of institutions and not as much as the, at the level of agents? This is at least how, how I'm inclined to think about it, but one can also do it uh, differently and just look at the, the more technical details of how, like there, there is just research on, on how artificial agents do, like if you use reinforcement learners, how, how they do in, in those cooperation problems when they play an integrated person's dilemma or something like that against each other. So there's research on that and, and what you can, how, can, how you can modify them to, to achieve more cooperative outcomes. Um, yeah, so that is, that is definitely also a, a technical uh, angle to, to that. In terms of AI governance, uh, have you, in your research, found anything that might help us uh, reduce future suffering? The best focus of governance interventions would be to, to focus on 
on avoiding conflicts and, and fostering cooperation, uh, similar to what I was talking about with uh, cooperative AI. I, I have to admit that the question of how to best do that on a practical level, I mean, how do you actually get the different AI labs or possibly governments that are involved to cooperate? Well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an expert on how to best do that on a, on a practical level. There are certainly people that are much better placed to, to, to answer that, that like more practical question. But in terms of what the goal should be, I think that avoiding conflicts and, and fostering cooperation between the relevant actors in this space, that, that seems to me a very worthwhile and important goal of like AI governance from an ESRIS perspective. If we're thinking in practical terms, do you think trying to influence governments are overcrowded uh, and it, perhaps especially so in the case of AI, where there are billions at stake. So a lot of people are interested in uh, influencing uh, AI regulations. Do you think that perhaps you or other with, with, with your uh, interests will have a chance at, at influencing the, these regulations? It's uh, certainly not, not going to be easy. And I mean, another problem is, of course, that we do not necessarily at this point know so exactly what sort of regulations we actually want or would be better in, in the long term. I wouldn't say that it's overcrowded. I mean, it's probably still less crowded than like other more mainstream political discourse. Maybe there are ways to have leverage here if you can get the right experts in the right uh, committee or, or whatever to have influence on, on government policy. I think this is actually what some people at FHI and at the GovAI have, have done. Um, so, uh, yeah, this can be a legitimate strategy to have an influence on, on the long-term future. So uh, I think it's, it makes sense. If we're talking, if we're still talking governance, but if we move on to space governance, uh, do you think that uh, we should be trying or people who are worried about reducing suffering in the future should be trying to um, make le legislation that makes it more difficult to go to space? Or do you think that the, perhaps the uh, public relations uh, risk there is too high because people uh, would like uh, humanity to go to space? It's exciting. Uh, perhaps people disagree with whether it would uh, lead to bad outcomes and so on. I would say that while I'm not entirely dismissing the idea, I'm relatively skeptical about whether this is going to be the best approach. Um, it, it, it seems to me that in the relevant scenarios, it's probably quite difficult to, to prevent space colonization altogether if, if you're in a scenario where people definitely want to do that for whatever reason. If you're thinking in terms of marginal impact, it seems better for people who are interested in estrus production to push for a more prudent approach that takes asterisks into account rather than just trying to stop space colonization altogether. Because as you're saying, that might be controversial. It, uh, it might run into a lot of opposition. And, and in that case, it's just better to try to, you know, if you can't beat them, join them and so or something like that. Um, but then again, I'm not entirely dismissing the idea either. Perhaps, the motivation to colonize space will be limited anyway, as we've discussed um, earlier. Perhaps opposition to it will be popular. I don't know. Uh, perhaps the sentiment will be make, make Earth great again. And yeah, in that case, it, it could be a strategy. But as I'm saying, like, it's something that to be careful about and likely not the best uh, thing to do because it's kind of too coarse-grained uh, and you probably want to find better 
more specific levers, we would use asterisks. Also, one of your favorite paths to trying to reducing suffering, uh, trying to reduce suffering is trying to build the movement of people who are interested in doing this and trying to, to research and gather knowledge about how to do this in practice. One thing, so th- this seems like a, like a laudable goal. This seems like a, a great thing to do to, to, to gain more knowledge about uh, our situation. Um, but perhaps one thing that uh, where the incentives wouldn't be right is that people who are, who are interested in, in reducing suffering risks would be perhaps motivated to find, find out that, that we can actually do something and would perhaps be reluctant to, to admit that maybe their research points uh, in the direction that, that we can't really uh, do anything about uh, reducing uh, suffering in the future. Do, do, you think that's a, do you think that's a problem? And, and do you think that's, a, that's a, especially a problem for, for suffering risks? Yeah, or for me personally, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this, this can be a risk. I mean, with any sort of cause area uh, or idea, I suppose there, there's a risk that people will, that the people who endorse it will sort of get stuck in their ways, get stuck in their way of thinking and cease to be open-minded about other priorities. So, I mean, I'm definitely not saying that I'm, 100% set on on this being the thing to do. I mean, I don't know. I, I could be convinced uh, by all sorts of arguments uh, that maybe a different focus is, is more fruitful. And nevertheless, at the moment, I, I think it's it's worth thinking about asterisks. I mean, it's good to have like, I don't know, a handful of people looking at worst case scenarios and what you can do about it, right? I mean, out of 8 billion people on earth, like it would be good if like maybe 10 or 20 can look at that. I, I, I take your point. Do you? What do you think uh, are the most uh, interesting unanswered questions when it comes to suffering risks? What are the most fruitful areas of research? If if uh, some of our listeners are interested in in looking into to to these issues themselves, what what should they dig into? Um, what what are some what is some what is some question that you would like to have answered? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the most action-relevant questions are to flesh out in in more detail what the nature of the most important suffering risks are. It's actually a question that we've sort of skirted uh, a little bit because it is a very difficult question to answer and we we just at the moment don't really know and like it's just distributed over many different possibilities and, and lots of unknowns but like of course it would be very valuable to know more about what, what classes of scenarios, what classes of outcomes actually contribute the most uh, suffering in expectation? That, that is obviously a very important research question to, to look at. Then the other question is, well, what, what are the most, most effective interventions? We've discussed some. We've discussed moral advocacy. We've discussed cooperative AI. But it's, it's of course, still an open question, uh, like which of those interventions is, is most impactful on the margin for reducing S risks. Uh, I mean, there are lots of open questions, uh, as you can tell. And I mean, I think it's more research on, on those crucial questions uh, would be very valuable, in my opinion. And indeed, I think that the most important thing to do now is like, to, to research what, what we should do, basically, about S risks. Fantastic. That's a great way to end it. Uh, Tobias, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me.